0: Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. On December 4th, 1998, 21-year-old Yale student Suzanne Joven was stabbed 17 times and left for dead in an upscale neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut. Police zeroed in on one and only one suspect, Suzanne's thesis advisor and a lecturer at Yale University, James Vandeveld. But Dr. Vandeveld was never arrested, and for good reason. You see, at least two prominent and very experienced investigators determined that there was no way her thesis advisor was involved in her murder at all. But local police dismissed the two investigators' theories and evidence and nevertheless persisted, trying to prove that he killed Suzanne. Now, over 20 years later, Suzanne's murder has still never been solved, and other suspects have never been publicly announced or identified. And the thesis advisor? Well, Dr. Vandeveld sued the pants off the city of New Haven and Yale for falsely labeling him a suspect. Y'all, this story is full of twists and turns, and it's sure to make you incredibly frustrated because of the mere tunnel vision the New Haven Police Department had, or even still has, honestly, in this case. This episode is titled, Who Killed Suzanne Joven? So without further ado, let's get started. Suzanne Nohuela Joven was born and raised in Göttingen, Germany, by her parents, Thomas and Donna Joven. Her parents are American scientists, specifically molecular and cell biologists, who spent years working at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry in Germany. Suzanne was educated in the rigorous German school system. She grew up speaking English and German fluently, but in the fifth grade, she began to learn Latin, and by seventh grade, she also learned French. She played the piano and the cello, and by the time Suzanne was a teenager, she had already traveled throughout Europe and spent vacations in Mexico, where her grandparents lived. One of her friends, David Bach, told Vanity Fair that she was, quote, extremely serious academically, but also just a great person to have fun with and hang out with. She was very traditional and stylish and feminine, but then also very rebellious and liberal, end quote. In high school, her friends said, she even sang with several rock bands because she just loved to sing and had a beautiful voice. Suzanne also loved Yale, and it was assumed she would go on to college there because she was a legacy. Her mother, Donna, had received her PhD from Yale University. And once on campus, Suzanne immediately became involved with volunteer work, something her mother had also done and urged her daughter to do as well. So Suzanne spent much of her time volunteering with a group called Best Buddies, an international organization that paired college students with mentally disabled adults. Vanity Fair reported that Suzanne had worked with the Yale chapter of Best Buddies since her freshman year, and she basically ran that organization by the time she was a senior in college. Those close to her said Suzanne would spend hours on the phone with her buddy, a guy named Lee, and she would take him to the Yale games with her friends or arrange other outings and social events to spend time with him. While attending Yale University, Suzanne double majored in political science and international studies, and she also co-founded the German club on campus. People close with Suzanne described her as beautiful, brainy, popular, and an angel. One of her friends described her as sparkly and another friend just simply talked about how cool she was. One woman who was friends with Suzanne since their freshman year of college told Vanity Fair about a specific memory she had with Suzanne. The friend recalled, quote, Suzanne laughed a lot. We went caroling freshman year and had so much fun. We glommed on to some crazy Christian group and we ran around singing and somehow ended up drinking schnapps all night, <laughs> end quote. So, as you can see, Suzanne was an all-around fun, amazing person, and a dedicated student. During her senior year, in September of 1998, she was accepted into a seminar class titled Strategy and Policy in the Conduct of War, with a professor who had developed a reputation as one of the best lecturers on campus, Dr. James Vandeveld. Suzanne was one of 169 students who applied to the seminar class and one of only 40 to secure a spot. Suzanne was so impressed with Vandeveld that she decided to do her senior thesis with him as her advisor. However, after a couple months into the fall semester of 1998, Suzanne began to think differently about Vandeveld. Basically, she started to get the impression that maybe he didn't have enough time to advise her or provide her with constructive feedback on her thesis, which frustrated her. Susanna Andrews for Vanity Fair reported that Suzanne had repeatedly tried to meet with Vandeveld about her senior essay, but she wasn't having much luck. One friend close to Suzanne said, quote, she complained bitterly about a bunch of things in that class and especially his lack of support for her project. He had shown no interest in her work, end quote. And Suzanne's parents said that she began to deeply resent the lack of mentoring by Dr. Vandeveld. Apparently, she had turned in a few rough drafts of her thesis to him, but he didn't take the time to read it or provide adequate feedback, at least from Suzanne's perspective. You see, right before Thanksgiving break in 1998, Suzanne turned in a second draft of her thesis to Vandeveld. The two were supposed to meet on Monday, November 30th, to discuss his feedback, but Suzanne told friends he had canceled the meeting because he had not had a chance to read it yet. At a meeting the next day on December 1st, he still hadn't read it. However, according to Vandeveld's lawyer, he could see how upset Suzanne was at that December 1st meeting, so he made it a point to review the thesis that night, and he met with her again the next day on December 2nd to provide her with his feedback and comments. According to Vandeveld's lawyer, Suzanne was much happier after that meeting on December 2nd. But according to Suzanne's parents and friends, she was far from happy and still not satisfied with his feedback and review. One of her friends said, quote, she was still upset. Furious is how she was. That's the way to describe how she was in those last couple of days with him. End quote. Regardless, Suzanne continued working on her thesis and making the revisions that Vandeveld suggested. Sometime between 4 and 4:30 4 p.m. on December 4th, 1998, Suzanne stopped by Vandeveld's office to drop off a new draft. Vanity Fair reported that she attached a cordial Handwritten note that outlined her changes and thanked him for his help. The note read, in part, Feel free to email me over the weekend if you have questions or run into any major problems. And she signed it with her name, Suzanne. This brings us to the day of Suzanne's brutal and tragic murder. On December 4th, 1998, Suzanne had had a busy day. For starters, she had been up all night working on her revision of her thesis. And then after she turned it in to her advisor in the late afternoon, she checked out a university vehicle for a volunteer event. She spent the evening at Trinity Lutheran Church, located four blocks away from campus, at a pizza-making party for Best Buddies, the organization she often volunteered with. Witnesses at the party later told police that Suzanne seemed tired that evening, but that she also appeared to be in a good mood. After she helped clean up, she left the church shortly before 8.30 p.m. and used the university vehicle from Yale to drive other volunteers home. When she returned to campus, she left the car in a parking lot and then walked to her apartment on campus before later walking to a police substation on campus to turn in the keys to that vehicle she had borrowed from the university. Now, for the next several minutes, I want to go through a very specific timeline of Suzanne's movements and exactly where she went between 9 p.m. and about 9.53 p.m., which is the time Suzanne was found nearly two miles away from campus fighting for her life after she had been stabbed multiple times. Suzanne later succumbed to her injuries and died at a New Haven hospital. So I want to go through this window of time providing some verifiable facts about her movements that night. After Suzanne returned to her on-campus apartment, or actually sources described it as a two-story Yale-owned building. But after she returned home to campus from that best Buddy's pizza party, a group of friends drove by her apartment between 8:30 and 8:50 pm. They recalled, quote, "We waved to her and said, "We're going to the movies. Do you want to come?" She was at her window and waved back. She couldn't come. She was planning to work on her senior essay, end quote. Then at around 9.02 PM, Suzanne logged onto her computer. She wrote an email to a friend telling her friend that she would leave some GRE study materials, including a book and a CD-ROM for her friend to pick up in her apartment lobby. And then she provided her friend with the access code to the lobby. Side note, GRE stands for Graduate Record Exam. It's basically a standardized test students usually have to take before being accepted to graduate school, like for a master's and a doctorate degree. Trust me, I've taken that sucker twice, and I do not envy anyone who has to study for it and take it. Anyway, in that email, she told the friend that she had lent the GRE materials to another person and that she just needed to retrieve them from that person before her friend could pick them up in her apartment lobby. Here's the thing, though. Police have identified the friend to whom Suzanne wrote the email, but they have never been able to identify exactly who that someone was, and I say someone as an air quote someone was whom she had lent the materials to and needed to retrieve them from. So put a pin in that piece of information for now. Anyway, we know that Suzanne sent this email after returning home from the volunteer event at the church and then she logged off her computer at around 9.10 p.m. Sometime shortly after sending that email, Suzanne left her apartment and headed in the direction of an on-campus police substation located at Phelps Gate, which is basically Yale's main entrance to the campus, from what I gather. Remember, she was heading that way to turn in the keys to the university vehicle she had borrowed earlier in the evening. While she was strolling through campus toward the main gate, Suzanne stopped and talked with her friend Peter Stein, who was walking past her. Peter later told police that he and Suzanne talked for about two to three minutes, which was sometime between 9.15 and 9.22 p.m. In 1999, Peter told the Yale Daily News, quote, she did not mention plans to go anywhere or do anything else afterward. She just said she was very, very tired and that she was looking forward to getting a lot of sleep, end quote. Suzanne then proceeded to walk to Phelps Gate to turn in the keys, which was about 9.25 p.m., After dropping off the keys, instead of turning around and retracing her steps to go back toward her apartment, Suzanne continued walking through Phelps Gate, off campus, heading north down College Street. Suzanne was then seen again by another student who was walking in the opposite direction on College Street at about 9.25 or 9.30 p.m. From here, police are not exactly sure where Suzanne went next or where she was headed, because even though she told her friend Peter that she was tired and wanted to get some sleep, she did not appear to be going home after she dropped off those keys. And ultimately, she never went back home. Between 9.53 and 9.55 p.m., a Yale medical resident and her friend had been walking around an upscale neighborhood in New Haven looking at Christmas lights. As they began to inch closer to the corner of East Rock and Edge Hill roads, they heard a scream, but didn't think much of it. That is, until they actually got to the corner of those streets. They soon saw a woman lying face down on a grassy area between the street and the sidewalk. Though they didn't know her at the time, the woman lying there clinging to life was Suzanne Jovin. The medical student told her friend to run back to their car where they had parked it and call 911 from her mobile phone. Police and paramedics arrived to the scene by 9:58 p.m. and took Suzanne to the Yale New Haven Hospital where she was pronounced dead at 10:26 p.m. So, what happened to Suzanne between 9:30 and 9:55 that night, just a 25-minute window? Well, let's go through the investigation and the theories that investigators have speculated over the years. But keep in mind, this case has still yet to be solved over 24 years later even though there is at least one plausible theory that police refuse to officially look into. Let's start with the evidence collected at the scene and work our way out to what exactly could have happened to Suzanne Joven. At the crime scene, where the medical student and her friend came upon Suzanne that night, police and paramedics found her clinging to life. Suzanne had been stabbed 17 times in her back and neck areas, and her throat had been slashed. She had been stabbed so forcefully that the tip of the knife used to kill her actually broke off into her school. A medical examiner later determined that only one of those stab wounds were fatal though, likely meaning the slash to her neck is what ultimately killed her. The ME also determined that the murder weapon was a four to five inch non-serrated carbon steel knife. But keep in mind, this knife was delicate enough for the tip to break off and become lodged into her skull. So officially, police had at least a portion of the murder weapon as evidence because it was discovered during Suzanne's autopsy. However, it's important to note that there was no evidence of sexual assault, so police thought maybe robbery might be the motive. The only piece of evidence that police found at the scene was an empty glass fresca bottle. It was discovered in some bushes near the sidewalk beside where Suzanne was lying in the grass. Police knew the bottle was Suzanne's or she had at least touched it because they found Suzanne's fingerprint and an unidentified palm print on the soda bottle. From the jump, police had two primary questions. One, where was Suzanne intending to go when she walked out of Phelps Gate that night if she wasn't going back to her apartment? And two, how did she get to the corner of East Rock and Edge Hill Roads some 20 to 25 minutes later, nearly two miles away from where she was last seen walking? First off, investigators believe she got to that upscale New Haven neighborhood by a car. Again, it was about two miles away from Yale's campus, so they don't believe she could have walked there in only 20 to 25 minutes. I mean, it takes me a good solid 20 minutes to even walk one mile. So unless Suzanne was an Olympic runner or a professional speed walker, she must have gotten to that area by a vehicle. The biggest thing that investigators wrestled with was what her intentions were that night. Whom could she have gotten in the car with that night and why? Well, police interviewed witnesses in the area and several claimed they had heard arguing between a man and a woman. Although that man and woman could include a number of people because nobody could identify who they were, police assumed it was between Suzanne and her thesis advisor, and they zeroed in on Dr. James Vandevelde, particularly after they learned that Suzanne had some conflict with him about her paper. Police quickly and completely prematurely came up with the theory that the two were having an affair and that he must have killed her. Here's the thing, though that conflict was basically one-sided. So allow me to explain. Y'all, I can't tell you how many times as a professor that students were upset with me, or they were upset with my comments on their papers, or even my lack of feedback that they thought they should have received from me. And how many of those times I never actually knew they were upset with me. Seriously, if I had a dollar for every student who was upset with me as a professor, I'd be a millionaire by now and probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. Y'all, I wouldn't realize they were upset or mad until either another student told me or until that particular student who was upset with me finally broke down and told me about it later on in the semester or even a few semesters later. I once had a student tell me they were mad at me the whole first semester they were in college. I later became that student's mentor. That's because out of respect for me as their professor, they would rarely tell me about their disapproval of my grading or feedback or critiques. Instead, they would vent to their friends and family or hell, even go to the dean or the chair of the department until they either got over it or it was resolved or until the situation just kind of fixed itself. Y'all, that's just what students do. It's nothing necessarily against Suzanne or Vandeveld. It's just how situations unfold sometimes in an academic setting, especially when we are talking about like positions of power, you know, like the power dynamic between a professor and a student. So I say all that to say from Vandeveld's perspective, although Suzanne made it blatantly known to her friends and family that she was upset with him, she never really told him or showed those sentiments to him directly. That can be easily concluded by the cordial, handwritten note she left Vandeveld when she turned in her final draft in the afternoon of December 4th. And when she did show dissatisfaction or any type of frustration about her thesis to Vandeveld, such as during their meeting on December 1st, If you remember, he took notice and realized she was upset and unhappy, so that evening he made a lengthy review of her paper and met with her about it the very next day on December 2nd. As you can see, the conflict or whatever it was between Suzanne and Vandeveld was really just a normal tiff between a professor and a student. Nothing more. So you may be able to understand just how outlandish it was for police to jump to the conclusion that this conflict automatically meant the two had an intimate relationship or that he had motive to kill her. It's just pretty far-fetched, you know? Plus, I think it's important to point out here that Suzanne had a serious boyfriend at the time of her murder. She had been in a relationship with a guy by the name of Roman Cadillo since her freshman year of college. And I know what you're thinking, but police quickly ruled her boyfriend out as a suspect. Roman, a 22-year-old engineer student at the time, had an airtight alibi because he had been in New York City with his parents, who were visiting the East Coast from Texas. And Suzanne's friend said Roman dearly loved Suzanne. He was so distraught after her murder that he even had to take a leave of absence from Yale. So, taking into account that Suzanne was in a serious relationship, an affair between her and a professor seemed even more unlikely. Regardless, in Vandevelde's defense, they had virtually nothing on him, like zero evidence besides a harebrained soap opera type of idea that a student was having an affair with her thesis advisor, and it went terribly wrong. Now, I'm not saying those types of things don't happen ever. I mean, obviously they do. But in this case, the evidence just wasn't there to back up their theory. It's like they were trying to push a square block through a round hole. For starters, Vandeveld was completely cooperative with police throughout the investigation. According to Vandeveld's attorney, Ira Grudberg, police first interviewed him a few days after the murder on December 7, 1998. Vanity Fair reported that this interview was brief and there was never any suggestion that Vandeveld was a suspect. But by the very next night, police were convinced that he was guilty. They interrogated him for four straight hours, and Vandeveld cooperated the whole time, never once asking to speak to an attorney or calling for his own lawyer. He also offered them the keys to his car, a red Jeep Wrangler, and his apartment. According to Vanity Fair, they searched his car, but never searched his apartment. Vandeveld also offered to let them do a blood test and take a polygraph, two requests that police denied. But... I mean, why? If they thought this guy was so guilty, why not let him take a polygraph? Why not do a blood test to compare his DNA to DNA from the soda bottle? Why not look more into the knife, the murder weapon that was used to kill her, and see if he had access to that type of weapon? Why not do anything besides point the finger? No, instead, they just publicly named him as a suspect and ran with it, seemingly discounting any other possibilities or potential suspects. Now, obviously, since police didn't have any evidence against Vandeveld, they could never officially arrest him or charge him with the crime, so they had to keep investigating. Meanwhile, though, Vandeveld faced a mountain of public scrutiny since he had been labeled a suspect, and Yale canceled his classes the following spring semester. Yale administration said that regardless of whether or not he was innocent, his presence on campus was a distraction. And, well, he never worked at Yale again. I do want to take this time to explain a little bit more about Vandeveld so you can get a full picture of exactly who police were trying to pin for Suzanne's murder. According to Vanity Fair, James Vandeveld attended Yale and graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science in the 80s. He then received his PhD in 1987 from the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in Boston, and in 1988, he was selected for a prestigious internship where he was assigned to work at the Pentagon in the State Department, which he did for four years. Also, in 1988, he joined the U.S. Naval Intelligence Reserves, in which he held the rank of Lieutenant Commander with top-secret clearance. Vandevelde, a Republican, left the State Department in 1993 after Bill Clinton, the Democratic candidate, won the presidential election, and then Vandevelde returned to Yale as the Dean of Saybrook College. In early 1997, he took a leave of absence from his appointment as dean to go to Italy on a naval intelligence assignment. Upon his return, he moved across the country to be the executive director of Stanford's Asia Pacific Research Center. But nine months into his five year contract there, he decided California was not for him and he ended up returning to Yale as a lecturer in 1998. Okay, so let's get back to the investigation. Two years after Suzanne's murder, police had still not identified any other suspects besides Vandevelde, which was not panning out. So, in the year 2000, Yale reached out to Andy Rosenswig, a former New York City police lieutenant and former chief investigator for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. According to the reporting of Randall Beach for the New Haven Register, Rosenswig was hired to look into the case by Yale after Suzanne's parents, Thomas and Donna Joven, pressured Yale administration to do so. Rosenswig agreed to come on board, but with him, he would enlist the help of Patrick Harnett, a former commanding officer of NYPD's major crime squad. Together, Rosenswig and Harnett determined that there was no way Vandevelde had anything to do with Suzanne's murder. They both agreed that there just wasn't any evidence whatsoever linking him to the crime. Zilch. They interviewed Vandeveld for several hours on two separate occasions, once in 2000 and again in 2001. Harnett told the New Haven Register, quote, I've never felt he had any motive to do anything as vicious as what happened to Suzanne Joven. I didn't feel there was any significant evidence pointing to him. He was fully cooperative with us, and he did everything in the world to cooperate with police. He felt he was done wrong. This is like Richard Jewell with a PhD, end quote. So you guys might remember that Richard Jewell was falsely accused by police as being the Centennial Olympic Park bomber in Atlanta, Georgia during the 1996 Summer Olympics, when all Jewell was trying to do was help and do his job as a security guard. It was ultimately revealed that Richard Jewell was, in fact, innocent, and the actual perpetrator was later arrested, charged, and convicted in 2005. Anyway, Rosenswig and Harnett said they tossed around other theories and identified at least a half a dozen potential suspects in Suzanne's murder, other than Vandeveld. But New Haven police and investigators basically rebuffed their theories and leads, which caused Rosenswig and Harnett to step away from the case. Rosenswig told the New Haven Register that authorities' focus on Vandevelde had two devastating effects on Suzanne's case. He said, quote, First, the damage to an innocent man's reputation. Second, the effect of shutting down of potential sources of tips and perhaps crucial information from the police's greatest source, the public. When people are fed a steady stream of reports that the police already know who committed the crime and will be making an arrest soon, they tend to think of their information as unimportant and probably wrong. Sadly, we'll never know how many sources in the Joven case came forward, end quote. Eventually, Vandeveld filed a civil lawsuit against the city of New Haven, Connecticut and Yale University for falsely labeling him a suspect. According to the New Haven Register, that suit was settled in June of 2013, The city agreed to pay Vandeveld $200,000, but Yale officials declined to disclose how much they paid him in the settlement. But what caused police to finally admit that Vandeveld was no longer a suspect in their case? Well, according to an op-ed piece written by Vandeveld himself for the Yale Daily News in 2008, quote, DNA, fingerprints, a suspicious van at the crime scene, a man running from the crime scene, confirmed as not me, and a complete lack of motive, all excluded me, end quote. So we're going to talk about that exclusive evidence and go through some more plausible theories of what might have happened to Suzanne Joven. And we will do that in part two of this episode. Y'all, there is still so much to cover in this case, including what I personally think is the most likely of suspects, a man we will call Billy, as his name has never been officially released to the public. We will go into all of that in much more detail in part two. But for now, that brings us to the end of part one of Chronicle 43. As always, be sure to check out my social media, where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Okay, well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by G.R.E. Gassaway. Tune in again next week for part two of this chronicle.